horrible short-term memory. Friday, we had a really delightful night. We went, Jordan and I, Ransom with Kyle and Allison up to DeCoin, got some good food. Then afterwards, we went to the light show at the DeCoin State Fair. If you've not been there, it's wonderful. Don't go to West Frankfurt's, uh, whatever it's called. Candy Cane Lane. That's nothing compared to DeCoin. Okay, go up to DeCoin, pay your $10, it is $10, and go to the lights parade. Ransom the whole time was hanging his head out the window. This is awesome. Over and over again, the whole time. It was wonderful. So fast forward about 24 hours, and Jordan said the next day, yesterday was so much fun, last night was just such a great time. And I paused and started to try to remember what we did the night before. And for the life of me, I stood there and I could not remember what did we do yesterday. I, can't, I, I, I could not remember. I didn't forget the event as soon as she told me what we did. Oh yeah, of course. Okay, I remember it. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't remember 24 hours before. Now, so for all the wives in the room... I'm going to defend the men in here. That's a real thing, okay? <laughs> that, that can happen. Sometimes we do have selective hearing. I realize that. But that short-term memory thing, <clears throat> at least for me, is reality. Well, Jude, in this letter, is going to call his hearers to remember a few things. And we do this commonly, okay? Uh, 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 Tara was able to help Ryan remember some things when he called her. When we're dealing with anxiety, we're dealing with difficulties in life, we kind of put our arm around our friend, brother, sister, neighbor, whoever, and we just say, hey, remember, God's in control. It's going to be okay. Okay? It's, it's going to be okay. You can trust Him. Uh, when we are dealing with somebody who's walking in condemnation and they're feeling like that, uh, they're just always just, they're just unforgiven, that God is always angry with them, well, what do we do? We come alongside and we help them remember. Hey, remember, there's, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done something here. And although you've made a mess of your life the last week, God is faithful. And so go and sin no more. You can trust Him. There's no, there's no condemnation. We remember, we remind people of truths. And Jude is going to remind Christians of some things that they already know. That's what a lot of the Christian life is. We're reminding each other of things we already know. It's not about just certainly learning some things. But the key to the Christian life is just remembering a few things and remembering a few things well. And then gathering around a group of people who will come alongside of you and say, hey, don't forget. Don't forget what Christ has done. Just remember. Remember you're His. You're forgiven. Jude, verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, there it is in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, remind you, and you knew this at one time, hearers. So we know he's just going to remind them of a, of a few things. Well, what is he going to remind them of? Well, this is where we're going. In the first five, it gives us an outline for verses five through seven. We're going to be reminded of one thing first, that Jesus saves. We're going to be reminded that Jesus saves, that he saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And then we're going to be reminded that Jesus also judges. 
And three times we're going to look at judgments from Him. So Jesus saves and Jesus judges. And a lot of the life and life in general for people that are in the world, the question comes down to where are you with Jesus? Because He's either your Savior or your judge. And this is the point. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? So three examples of Jesus saving. And then, or excuse me, one example of Jesus saving and three examples of judgment. So pretty simple outline. So let's first look at Jesus the Savior. Jude, talking about his big brother Jesus, says this. That Jesus, your translation might say the Lord, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. This is fascinating. Jude grew up with Jesus. And Jude, as we already know, is... He's told us that he is, that, that Jude, I am the, my master Lord, I am a slave of my big brother. But now he's telling us it was his big brother who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. My big brother did that. Jude is saying that he is my precursor. He existed before me. He actually saved the people of Egypt. Anybody that was ever saved in the history of the world was saved by and for Jesus. It's fascinating the interpretive grid. <coughs> Sorry, I'm still getting over a sickness. When we were having dinner Friday night, I was squeaking the whole night. Kyle and Allison can tell you that. So if I squeak here a little bit, it's because I'm still getting my voice back. But the interpretive grid that Jude has over the Bible is that Jesus is the way redemption happens. He looks back in history and he calls the attention of the believers who are reading this letter and says, Remember, Jesus is the Savior. He saves people. He saves. Now, it's an amazing thing that he would say that a bit about his big brother, but it's also amazing that this whole interpretive thing that we've kind of rediscovered, that people have kind of rediscovered over the last hundred years, oh, Jesus is the point of the Bible. We are not the point of the Bible. It is a reality. The New Testament authors looked back on the scope of human history and they saw Jesus everywhere. And so as we went through the book of Genesis and just page after page as we were discovering redemptive themes and we were talking about, you know, in, 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 in Genesis chapter 22 uh, with Isaac <coughs> uh, being laid at the altar and there being a ram who, whose horns were thuck, stuck in a thicket and we think about the crown of thorns put upon the sacrificial lamb. We see these themes all the way through the book of Genesis. This is what the New Testament authors did. And we would be wise to interpret the scriptures in the same way that the New Testament inspired writers interpreted the scriptures. And so we look back and we say, Jesus, thank you for your work, your saving work. Those who are saved of old were saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. He saves helpless sinners. The people of God, when they were under the oppressive rule of Egypt, had no power to escape themselves. Unless God was to come through, unless Jesus would come, this retroactive work of Christ, from the, this, this pre-incarnate Christ, doing this saving work and delivering them out of Egypt, they were doomed to be in Egypt forever. They could not appeal to the Pharaoh and say, hey, can us two million slaves here who are free labor for you, can we just walk out of here? They were powerless and helpless. And the image that Jude gives the people uh, 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 that he's writing to is that I want to remind you that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And you knew that once, but I want you to be reminded. And we need to be reminded of this. He saves people from all tribes and tongues. And all of them, sinners. And no one has ever been saved without meeting the prerequisite of being a helpless sinner who can contribute nothing to God. 
This was all of us. Just like in Egypt. Helpless. God, unless you do something here, I'm doomed to be in slavery forever. But freedom came. Redemption came. Jesus saves. And He wants them to remember that. But in light of the false teachers in their midst, and you remember these false teachers we talked about a few weeks ago, were using the grace of God for self-indulgence and for themselves to to build up themselves rather than self-sacrificing. They were twisting the grace of God for self-righteous purposes. And Jude wants to remind them that there are consequences for such actions. Don't think, false teachers, that you can take the gospel of Jesus, twist it, and still call it the gospel of Jesus, and get away with it. There are consequences for that. There is a gospel that is no gospel at all, the book of Galatians tells us. False gospels abound. And Jude was dealing with one of them, those who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality, into self-indulgence. And so example one, he calls us to remember that Jesus saves. I want you to think about the grace of God that He would save. And then, if we just in our mind do a mental picture of our yearly Bible reading or a five-year Bible reading plan, whatever it may be, and when you think about God coming through, I want you to think about all of those pictures of redemption pointing you to something outside of itself. When God comes through with the judges, the judges would read the book of Judges, and the people of God would run from God, they would rebel, and then God would raise up a judge and He would save the people. But what's that a picture of? It's a picture of a coming redemption. It's painting a picture for us. It's pointing us outside of itself and to Christ. And this was the interpretive grid for Jude. He looks back and says, My big brother was the one who redeemed Israel of old. It's just an amazing statement. You know, it really is true that Jesus is either, like C.S. Lewis says, okay, he's liar, lunatic, or Lord. And you could actually say that same thing about these other New Testament writers. Jude is either a liar, here, he's a crazy madman, or he really is inspired of God to write these words. It, it comes down to that reality again, just like with Christ. So example one, Jesus saves. We see Jesus is the Savior. But also, Jesus is a judge. Because we see in the same verse, a comma, and it says, Afterward, He destroyed those who did not believe. Now, our first thought of destruction when we think about Egypt, and the people of God leaving Egypt, is the Egyptians being swallowed up by the the Red Sea. Remember that? Came across, the Egyptians swallowed up, people of God are over there. Oh my goodness, God saved. This is not what this is talking about, because... He says, after he destroyed those who did not believe. This is actually not talking about Egyptians. It was talking about the consequences of being a Jewish person person, and not believing in the promises of God. Disbelieving. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Not believing. Not believing that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he does. Not believing that God is going to save. And so the judgment comes upon Israel itself, disbelieving Israel. Okay? This is important. The issue, even in the Old Testament, is not about being born a Jew or even being circumcised. It was about belief. Even in the Old Testament. There were disbelieving Israel. There was an Israel within Israel. The people of God... Israel, and then there was a group in Israel who believed the promises. 
trusted that God was going to do what He said He would do. That He would bring a Messiah that would bless all the nations of the world. And then there, the good old just Jew who was under the banner of the Jewish people, the people of God, who received some of those benefits of being the people of God, but they are not truly the people of God. And they were destroyed. And so the issue, even in the Old Testament, is do you believe God or not? Believe. 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 In our context, it can be said like this. You can't be a Christian apart from belief. It doesn't matter the family you were born into. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as an infant or not baptized as an infant. If you had, and, and if you had even the entire New Testament memorized, and if you grew up going to every single church outing that was ever present at the church building. If you don't believe in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, you will not be saved. It's as simple as that. And this is the offensive message of Christianity. If you don't believe in Jesus, there's judgment coming. Do we believe that? Tangibly, do we believe it? That our world right now is not built to receive such messages. There is a day that was not some glorious heyday in the Christian world. But there was a time when people actually believed in heaven and hell, just even non-believers walking around. There was just throughout this world, throughout this globe. Today, much of what we believe is nonsense to the world. And so This reality isn't accepted. But we have some things in the scriptures that we need to deal with. And then I think if we believe what God says, it should compel us in love and compassion to tell the world some things that God says. Example two, angels or celestial powers. So God judges these first, these unbelieving people. So if you don't believe in Christ, there's judgment to come. Destruction to come. And then secondly, even the angelic beings cannot escape the judgment of God Almighty. Verse 6, And the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There were angels who violated their intended purpose. The intended purpose assigned to them rebelled against God, and they have been judged. So celestial powers, not false teachers, not angels, nobody, no one is going to get away with rebellion and disbelief in God. You cannot function independently in this world as if you are your own God, nor can angels, and get away with it without the judgment of the God of the universe. It says that He has kept, Jesus has kept them in eternal chains. Under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jesus has bound these angels with eternal chains until greater punishment is to be added to those eternal chains at final judgment. Now I want you to think about the kindness of God in His judgments. Okay? Because when we think about God's grace and His mercy and His saving power, we think, oh, God is good. But we think about God's judgments or His wrath or His... His way about going and punishing evil, we think, 
I don't know about that, if that is compassionate, but think about the kindness and the wisdom of Jesus' judgments. He is restraining at this moment evil and rebellious angels. Is that not a good thing? We look at this world, and here's the reality. Things could be worse. They could be a lot worse. And on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He defeated Satan and demons. And in some way or another, they are bound to not be able to do the things in this world that they could do if they were unbound. And those consequences will remain until greater punishment is to be added to those chains at the final judgment. Those chains will not be removed, but judgment will come to those angelic hosts who rebel against God. Even the cosmic powers fall under God's careful, compassionate, judging eye. Jesus saves and Jesus judges. Example three. In thinking about the atrocities of these false teachers, that they would actually take the precious grace of God given to people, given to people to be received with gratitude, and the fact that there would be those people who would say, here's the grace of God, go live self-indulgent lives, God. He is so enraged by that, the Spirit of God brings something to his mind. Disbelieving Israel, fallen angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. And he begins to think about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Holy Spirit leads him to write about this. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, there we go, self-indulgence, and sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So as he's addressing these so-called grace preachers, Using the grace of God. Twisting it. He begins to think about other examples of gross sin. Not as if there is any sin that is not gross sin. It is all gross sin. And in fact, all sin is punishable by death. But these cities were self-indulgent in the same way that these false teachers were self-indulgent. Living to gratify self. And so the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is now going to serve as an example for, for these false teachers. And I think consequently for the broader uh, world to say, because it's true, within the world, if you don't believe, okay, you're out. If you rebel against the way God has designed the image of God to work, to honor and glorify Him, then there's judgment to come. And if you live these self-indulgent lives then there is consequences likewise to pay. So I think not only does this go to these false teachers, but it's a warning to the watching world. And it should be compelling to us. This should leave us not wondering, oh my gosh, am I saved or not? But after we hear this, we should be thinking, I have some people to tell. tell I, I need to tell some people about Jesus. I really do. <coughs> What's the example? It says that they, Sodom and Gomorrah, serve as an example for us. Well, the example that's laid out is that they are undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, there's some differences in how to understand this passage, and there's godly people who differ in their views on this passage. I'm going to lay mine out, and 
I believe this is the, the right view. Um, I hope you know this. I could be wrong. You know that? That's why I want you to study your Bibles. You have the Holy Spirit. Like, the Bible, just study your Bibles. Wrestle. Okay? Like, it, I, I don't have an errant doctrine like right now the Pope claims to, as he's wanting to reinterpret the Lord's Prayer. Okay? But here's what I see in this. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, we have a parallel passage to the book of Jude. It's very parallel. People wonder what back and forth. Okay, did they use each other the other here? How did, how did Jude 2? It's so comparable to, or excuse me, 2 Peter 2 is so comparable to Jude. But 2 Peter 2 has a par- parallel, and we see this, this judgment that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. It says this, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So we have this making example again of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find that the judgment in 2 Peter 2 is this judgment of extinction. Immediate judgment. Gone. Done. And here's the reality of Sodom and Gomorrah. We still have not found Sodom and Gomorrah up to this day. The judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah was immediate and it was there. They were judged. Gone. Sodom and Gomorrah were really judged in history. And whether or not we ever find these cities or not, doesn't change the fact that this really happened. They were really judged, and they were really, they really were judged to extinction. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah died, and they were gone. But if we flip back to Jude, although they had a temporary judgment in the space-time continuum, as it really happened in history, and they were really extinct, something else seems to me to be going on here. It seems to be going on. Because they serve as an example, the latter part of verse 7, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, the word undergoing is important because it is a present active verb. Present active, meaning that the punishment didn't just simply end at that moment. But Sodom and Gomorrah are still undergoing present tense active punishment of eternal fire. So although this happened multiple thousands of years ago, the punishment continues. So that the temporary judgment seems to be indicative of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And so when we think about this ongoing judgment of God, we think about hell, it starts to get uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, if you're just completely at peace talking about hell, gosh, it should conjure up inside of us some questions, some, some maybe even difficulties, because it, it, it's not something to be thrown around lightly. It's not something to be thrown around harshly. There should be some compassion as we talk about such things. But there are immediate objections that come into the minds of people, into my mind, as I wrestle with this. And I've wrestled with this recently. And the original objection, the first objection that comes into my mind as I begin to think about this, it almost inevitably comes back to this feels unfair. Feels unfair. That this warning would be laid out to false teachers. Is being a false teacher and twisting grace really that big of a deal? That these examples would be laid out for them? Is it really that big of a deal? It doesn't feel like it. 
But I think at the core of this, part of my sinful nature that remains, as I've been given a new heart, been changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit within me, I think there's still within me this belief that humanity is generally innocent. It's kind of like a default position. That humanity is itself innocent by nature. We kind of assume human innocence as a starting point. And when anything bad happens, we watch this, I remember uh, 9-11, any plane crash, anything. When anything, you, anybody you know in your life gets cancer or get, get whatever it may be, something bad happens to them, whatever it may be, you wonder, how can good things, how, how do bad things happen to good people? It's this inevitable question that rises up, and it's so hard, it's such a difficult thing. When a plane falls out of the sky or flies into a, a window uh, or into a building, we think, where is God? Okay, that's those questions naturally just kind of bubble up inside of us. We feel it. And I think the question should be, instead, why do all these good things happen to bad people? Why, why in this world do anything good happen? Let me say it a different way. If we believe the question is kind of give a Gallup poll, everybody in our country just said, does everybody, if there's a heaven and hell, if, does everybody deserve heaven or does everybody deserve hell? What do you think the national, forget Christians aside, what do you think people in general would say? Well, heaven. Everybody would deserve heaven. Of course. That's what everyone would deserve. Because within us, there is this bent towards belief that I'm innocent, and if I'm judged, it must be somebody else's fault than mine. Even God's. So we should be asking, why do good things happen to bad people? We should be asking, why does God want any of us in His presence? Why would He let anyone into heaven? Why would God save anyone? But even as I say that, they don't feel right. What I would say, why would God let anybody into heaven? It just, even when we know the right answer, there's a feeling, it's, a, it's like a gut level, just, ugh, just doesn't feel right. God's punishments don't seem to fit the crime. False teaching? Sodom and Gomorrah's punishment? What? Am I alone in, in, in wondering? Like, okay, I'm confused on that a little bit. And I don't think I'm alone in wondering with just outside of this church walls, the world, what they think. But what if God's punishments actually do fit the crime? Let's just say the punishments of God do fit the crime. What if hell is telling us the truth about ourselves and about God? What are these warnings here telling us the truth about, God, about ourselves and about God? God telling us about hell is God telling us about ourselves. God telling us about hell is God telling us the truth about ourselves. This is what your sin warrants and this is just. If His judgments are just, what does it tell us about the depth of the sin that we have been in in our life? The mess that we were in before Christ. How big of a hole that we were in. How spiritually dead we actually were. How rebellious, in fact, we have been in our life. This is how deep in sin humanity is. Sin against an eternally good God warrants an eternally bad punishment. Uh, Penn Jillette from Penn & Teller. You know, the science guy was on... Uh, uh, Penn, Penn & Teller. Penn was on... Uh, what was that? Uh, Deal No Deal? Was that what he was on? He was on some TV show for a while. Penn & Teller. He made an astounding statement a few years ago. I'm going to wrap it up here in just a bit. Uh, 
He said this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. He's an atheist, by the way. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's really not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everlasting life and believe that it's possible and not tell them that? An honest atheist. I appreciate it so much. He sees the truth of the matter. He speaks out in his convictions. And we as men, we're our people of conviction. This, at least we have an atheist here who's speaking out of conviction. And here are we. If we believe the things that we say we believe, even if there's nuances in how we understand them, if we say we believe what we believe, then it should compel us to go and say, you know what, I don't care if it makes this weird, but the Bible says, you are a sinner, and I love you, and I'm a sinner, and God saves sinners. And I want you to know that if you repent of your sins, and if you trust in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. It's a message, friend, that's not found anywhere else. Everywhere else in the world says it's up to you. And you know what? Friend, sister, brother, this burden is impossible to bear. But Jesus came to take that burden and to take your sin and to take your punishment in your place that you could have everlasting life. And the truth of the doctrine of hell should tell us the depth of the human condition. But it can compel us, it should compel us to go and plead with people. I implore you to be reconciled to God. So I ask, honest reflection, do we actually believe the same things that we say we believe? Pendulette's right. Jude 23, will be there in a few weeks, says this, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This appeal to bring the gospel so this judgment won't come. God has been merciful to save Numbers, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who deserve to go to that place. Hundreds of thousands, millions. And yet God is gracious and kind. But there's good news. It doesn't just end with hell. Hell is telling us also about God's amazing love. How infinitely massive must God's love be to save not little sinners who are cute in their sin, like our children. They're lying and yet somehow they're cute. And we have a tendency to polish ourselves up a little bit. We wrote an article about, and the Word became flesh. And we kind of think like, okay, to God, nobody else sees the beauty within, but God does. And I'm a whole lot like Brad Pitt within. God sees me. Nobody else sees my potential. God sees me. The question is, well, why, why would He save you? You're wonderful. But the truth of the Scripture is saying, hey, you're like an orc from the Lord of the Rings. Your soul is not cute through those lives. There's nothing about you that God would look at and say, oh. And yet He looks at you and says, oh. Out of His sheer grace and His mercy and His love because He's chose to love sinners. And
And that choosing to love wasn't motivated by the orc within. It was motivated by the God of the universe. He just, he loves orcs. This is compassion. This is great. And if we minimize the depth of human sin, we simultaneously minimize the magnitude of God's love into a way that seems understandable. Of course He can love people who are lovable. But if we deserve this and God loves this, how amazing is the love of God? Now friends, there's good news for you and for me in the gospel of Jesus because we look at what we deserve and then we look at what we have received. And we think about, God, you have been infinitely kind to me. I didn't separate myself from anybody else. In your love, you chose me and you saved me and I did nothing to earn that choosing and saving I thank you. If I deserved hell and Jesus came for me, then a song that should be regularly on my lips, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Was blind, but now I see. 